In this episode of the Church Security Roll Call, we're going to be discussing the lessons learned from the 2002 Lady of Peace church shooting. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Chris with Sheepdog Church Security, and this is your Church Security Roll Call. Today we're going to be discussing the article, The 2002 Lady of Peace Church Shooting. If you would like to read that article, go to our website, sheepdogchurchsecurity.net, and look under the News tab. So let's begin in the Bible, as we always do. This one is Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 19, and it reads like this. The gatekeepers, Akab and Talman, and their brothers, who kept watch at the gates, were 172. So here's another Old Testament example of God using his people to be gatekeepers, to be watchers, to be protectors of his temple and of his people. And that's exactly what we are today, the sheepdogs. Before I continue, I do think you still have time to get our severe weather supply list. And so make sure you get a copy of that. It's going to be very helpful for you if you ever have to shelter in place at your church. So we're going to be talking about this shooting. And I'm going to be doing a little bit of reading here. And the idea is to make sure that you get um, as many details as you possibly can. And so the first, so just getting into all this, on Tuesday morning, March 12, 2002, a handful of parishioners gathered for their 9 o'clock mass. In came a visitor, someone that nobody knew. He parked his car in the front of the church, came inside the front door, stood there for a minute, left, and then came back again. Um, standing in the vestibule, he was quite fidgety and looked nervous. As the priest finished his homily and turned around, the visitor, we're saying visitor, he's a killer, entered the sanctuary, pulled a 22 rifle out of his trench coat, and uh, lifted it to aim and shot the priest in the back. Then he shot an elderly woman who was praying in the front pew. The next four shots he fired hit nobody at all. A former Marine, and he's also a Vietnam veteran, had grabbed the rifle and was wrestling the gunman for it. He, um, the, the, the Marine, he had been watching the visitor the entire time and rushed to intercept him when he shouldered the rifle. Having lost his rifle, he gets the rifle away and the gunman run, runs out of the church to his apartment, which was only a block away. And the priest and the woman that had been shot both died, but there were no other casualties. So here's a little bit about this guy who did the killer, the guy who did all this stuff. He was a guy in his mid-30s. He had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. He had been released from a mental hospital and had been unable to hold down a job since he'd lost his last one. Um, the, The mental health caseworkers in this area apparently lost track of him and failed to follow up with him. And so... Without that kind of check and balance, he stopped taking all his medications. So here we are. We're in deep trouble. The killer had graduated from an all-boys Catholic high school about um, six to eight miles from the church. Um, The New York Times um, reported that he had created a death list. 
and the sh- in the shooter's apartment. And there was other things that mentioned his high school experience, um, but there was no mention of any sort of sexual abuse, which one blogger kind of made that accusation. So this is 2002, and you can, if you remember then, there were a lot of accusations coming out against the Catholic Church at that time. So, um, so everything that he wrote in this little thing along with his death list was kind of consistent with me, you know, mental illness and specifically paranoid schizophrenia. Um, in the, on his death list, he had musicians and others in the worship at that church. Um, for, and um, let's see, what else? Um, although he didn't pretend, he didn't actually know any of them, which is kind of interesting. So he was probably looking on their website or looking at other literature that <clears throat> that gave him the ability to write out, you know, all those people's names, even though he never meant them. Um, uh, the uh, The assumption here is that the only reason that this church was targeted is because it was the one that was closest to him. Um, let's see, before moving to that neighborhood, he had um, roomed in a town to the east and attended a local Catholic church there. Uh, we don't know what his encounters were with the priest while he was a youth, but in 2002, as I already said, that's when a lot of sexual um, abuse cases were coming out of the Catholic church or against the Catholic church. Uh, the murder weapon he purchased was with a stolen credit card the day after um, the killer had lost his job. He signed the NCIS form for the background check, and it cleared. Now, a little caution for you. This is going to get a little bit into the whole Second Amendment, and most of you know my position on that, but I'm just going to read it because this is what happened, right? So, despite the fact of his involuntary commitment to the mental health facility and his violation of restraining order for domestic violence, he was able to get it, it passed. At that time, many local jurisdictions didn't actually report or have to report this kind of stuff into the system. And so it was still really sloppy back then. And because of that, you know, you have somebody slip through. Once again, this is not a political statement. It's just what happened because his domestic violence um, you know, conviction should have prevented him from passing that background check. Um, and of course, now that's up for debate and politics is, you know, at what point in the mental illness diagnosis are they also restricted from we- owning weapons? But I'll leave that to, to you guys to discuss. I'm going to kind of stay out of that. The hero of the story here is actually a guy named Gerald Dank. He was that former Marine, one who served in Vietnam, that ended up disarming the other guy. And if it wasn't for him, there's no telling how many more people would get killed. Now, what Gerald did was this, is he was sitting in the back of the church, kind of off to one side. And so when the killer pulls out his rifle, Dank actually goes out one door to go in, behind him comes through then the back doors to tackle him and take him down and disarm him and so he you know he's really a hero here for doing that now a lot of you guys are saying well if if Gerald would you know if Gerald would have had a gun he would have had made possibly a pretty clean shot from that corner 
across the back to the bad guy and across to the other wall. So, you know, that that's something to think about. If you're armed, you can do stuff. But at the same time, Gerald made a pretty good tactical decision based on the circumstances to come up behind him and then engage him from there. And so he, like I said, he saved a lot of lives by doing that. The other thing that Gerald did was this, is once he disarmed a guy, he actually, the bad guy actually took off running to his apartment. Well, Gerald followed him, and with him was an off-duty police officer who just ended up sitting in the sanctuary. Now, y'all know I served 18 years in law enforcement. I love cops. There's nothing bad about cops. But if you're a church that's relying on off-duty police officers to serve as protectors, but they're just sitting in the congregation, they're probably not doing you any good. Because in this case, at least, that police officer was just sitting down like everybody else. He was downrange from where the killer was, throwing rounds downrange. It was only Gerald who was actually, you know, strategically placed somewhere, putting himself someplace where he could act against an aggressor like that. So if you're just relying on off-duty police officers, you need to organize that a little bit more. So the aftermath here, they run down, they get to the um, they get to the guy's apartment, they've called police, police show up, there's a standoff at the at the apartment building until the police finally went in, had to break down the door, go in. Um, the killer did attack one of the cops with a knife. Obviously, he lost, and they drug him off to jail. He did go to court, charged with murder, attempted murder, and uh, what something else. I think it was a firearms charge, something to that effect. Um, and he ended up getting life in prison. They, his lawyer wanted him to do an insanity plea, um, but he apparently refused it. And so now he's sitting in jail for the rest of his life. Um, okay, so other things that kind of come out of this case is that probably the biggest thing, I guess the biggest lessons learned here, and the one that all of us need to really adopt is, number one, is it's hard to replace watchmen. It's hard to replace sheepdogs that are strategically placing themselves um, around the church in order to respond to emergency situations. And it really should be more than just that violent intruder, right? I mean, other things could happen. You know, if grandma has a heart attack in the middle of the, you know, in the middle of the services, somebody needs to be there to recognize what's going, that's happening and then have a real plan to respond to that and take care of it. Or maybe it's just a protester. But either way, watchmen, having people pay attention, gatekeepers, people that are watching the doors. You know, 60% of all active shooter situations actually start outside. And so there's a chance of all kinds of actions. You know, the sooner you detect it, the sooner you can do something about it. And so we have to have our watchmen. Then there's a couple other things that aren't in the article, but I'm going to bring them up. Is The first thing is this. As I was talking to a fellow sheepdog the other day, and we were talking about the white settlement shooting. And one of the things that kind of comes out of that, and, and this one as well, as well is approaching suspicious people. 
So in both the white settlement case and in this case, he was detected early. And so you have, and, and in cases, people are watching him. They're paying attention to him. You know, and it's the right people paying attention. In this case, it was Gerald paying attention. But what we're not doing is we're not, we're waiting then for them to do something as opposed to approaching them and and making contact. Now we've talked about, you know, approaching suspicious people, you have your contact and cover, and talk with them, interact with them, because if they're going to do something, we want them to do that to the people that are trained to deal with it, right? So if they would have gone out there into the lobby, now, you know, like I said, I'm, this is not about talking bad about what Gerald could have, should have, would have done. It's about us learning of what can, what's a better way of handling this. If, Ger if Gerald would have had some backup, like that off-duty police officer, they could have approached him in the lobby, made contact with him. They probably, based on what we know about him, they probably would have detected a number of other signs that would have told them that they need to go farther with this, that they need to take some other action, right? Hi hiding a 22 rifle underneath a, you know, um, whatever, a long coat, you're still going to see something, right? Especially if you're talking to them. You're going to see it kind of poking out of the bottom or maybe you're going to see the butt of the weapon or something, you know, sitting on the side of the jacket, you know, printing himself a little bit. Also, too, he might have been rambling for at that point. Who knows what he's saying or acting? You're going to detect that. And now you can take action before it even gets into the congregation. Same thing with the white settlement. They saw him from outside. He was wearing a fake beard. I mean, there was a lot of indications that this was seriously somebody disturbed or something was up. And if they would have made that earlier contact, would people still have died? Maybe, possibly. We don't know. But if we make that contact under when we want to make that contact, I think about vehicle traffic stops for cops. The bad guy doesn't choose, or the person you're pulling over doesn't choose where they, you stop. You do, because it's about you turning on your lights and pulling them over. So there's some wisdom, especially if you know the area well, to pull that car over in a place that's well lit and, you know, and, is, and safer from traffic and all these kind of things. Same thing with these suspicious people. You see them, you get on the radio, you call your partner, hey, I got a suspicious person, you know, in the parking lot. I got a suspicious person coming through the door. I got a suspicious person in the lobby or in the sanctuary, whatever. Let's make contact and, you know, even do a little rehearsal there. Talk to each other. Hey, I'm going to contact them. You're going to cover me. That kind of deal. The other thing that came out of that conversation is this. Very few of us can draw from a concealed location on our body very fast. Now, some of you practice it a whole lot. That's awesome. But a lot of people don't. And so when you're in, that, in a certain distance of that person, they already have their weapon out, it may not be wise to just go for your weapon. You know, if you've listened to a lot of our training, we discuss the importance of a, you know, a six-foot um, you know, safe distance between you and the subject. And the reason we want that six feet is because that's the reaction time, that's the space you need to react to a physical attack. So now let's reverse that. Your 
six feet or less away from somebody who is now showing deadly force intent. You see that rifle, you see that shotgun come out. You might be better off to strike them, to physically attack them. You know, the nose is the eye-watering button. You hit that thing and either you're going for your weapon, the draw time, you know, now their eyes are watering, you've disoriented them, you know, you interrupted that OODA loop, and now you're drawing your weapon and you're putting rounds on target. Or maybe you physically attack the bad guy and that's your commitment. You got backup, right? You got your cover there. You both just, if you're winning the fight, in the case of Gerald here, winning that fight, getting that rifle away, that other officer, the off-duty officer, if he would have been ready and part of the plan, he could have jumped in there and they would have, you know, disarmed him. Now, maybe a little bit easier than just leaving it all to Gerald. And so that's really part of it is, is training your people when you're at the range. If you're allowed to, I know some of these indoor ranges don't let you do anything. But if you're in an outdoor range or someplace that you have a little bit more freedom and you're at that six foot or less or three foot, however you want to train it, train to do a palm strike to their nose. Train to, you know, either if they're turned slightly, you know, side or backhand, you know, hit them in the face as you draw that weapon and engage. And then, of course, too, if you're doing some good unarmed self-defense training, you're also training on just being physical because sometimes that's going to be the right answer. So before I let you go, I want you to let you know that um, we cover all this kind of stuff in our de-escalating disruptive people courses, our active shooter courses. We talk about it a little bit in our safety team fundamentals. And all of those things are part of our safety member certification course. And I really just want to encourage you to take it. We've had a lot a lot of people go through the course and it's all been good all good reviews a lot of great feedback so i want to encourage you to do that um, finally if you like this video in about a minute or two our logo is going to show up if you click that a little subscribe button will come up you subscribe that'd be great if you did that then you get notifications there's a notification thing as well uh, let you know when new videos come out and as I've told you in the past sometimes I come up with videos that aren't connected to the church security roll call and they're just there so um, it's good to be subscribed so at least you won't miss those so thank you so much for joining us this week and hey let's be careful out there This program is made for informational purposes only and should not be taken as legal advice.